Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia and today I'm honored to welcome Tom DeLay in the Green Minds podcast. Tom is the first chief executive of the Carbon Trust since 2001. Since then, he has grown the company to become a world leader advising businesses and governments on net zero and the development of low carbon strategies, markets and businesses. Tom is also a board member of Seven Trend, where he chairs the Corporate Sustainability Committee and a member of the UK Energy Research Partnership and the advisory boards of the Centre for Climate Finance and Investment at Imperage College London. A chartered engineer, Tom worked for Shell for 16 years in commercial and operation roles in Africa and Europe before moving into management consultancy with McKinsey and Kearney. He studied mechanical engineering at the University of <coughs> Southampton and has an MBA from INSEAD. In 2018, he was awarded a CBE by the Queen for Services to Sustainability in Business. Welcome, Tom. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. So, as I mentioned, you spent 16 years at Shell working across the globe. I'm sure people ask you this, but given that you are now the head of one of the most prominent firms in climate action and sustainability agenda for companies, it strikes me as very interesting that you kind of started your career at Shell. So, could you please walk me through your career and how you ended up becoming uh, the CEO of Carbon Trust? Yeah, a lot of people kind of naturally assume that somehow I feel guilty about 16 years in Shell and have uh, compensated that with over 20 years at the Carbon Trust. Um, it, it isn't the case. Um, I have a very high regard for Shell. I think it's a fantastic company, very professional. I learned a lot. I benefited. And of course, at that time, climate change just wasn't on the agenda. Um, so there's no real, oh, yes, I went from Shell to Carbon Trust. That never quite happened. Um, but Shell was responsible for, in some ways, my motivation in creating and joining the Carbon Trust at the very beginning. Um, I was very lucky in the very early days I spent in Shell to be in Ethiopia and Djibouti at the time of, very sadly, uh, a civil war in Ethiopia that led to mass famine. Uh, and uh, most people uh, remember it as being a kind of, it was the the time when the world focused um, on that part of the world and it was called Live Aid and Bob Geldorf did massive concerts and it got real mass popular um, appeal. Uh, people being quite rightly horrified by what was going on in Ethiopia and trying to help the famine. And I was there in Djibouti minding my own business and suddenly I went from being a young graduate engineer working uh, in, in a very small bit of shell out in the Horn of Africa to spending most of my time with the UN, UNHCR, UNDP, with the Peace Corps, with various other governmental bodies, people basically trying to help out with the civil war in, in, in Ethiopia. And I suddenly realized that I really enjoyed doing something with real purpose. I mean, it was absolutely in front of me. You knew what was happening. It was on all the news channels. So purpose was very appealing to me. I also realized I, I have quite a high tolerance for ambiguity. I like difficult problems and big problems, and I like the challenge of those. Um, so in a sense, having enjoyed that, I then went on and completed, as you say, 16 years in Shell in all kinds of uh, roles. But um, about half of my time was spent in sub-Saharan Africa, where I had that same sense of purpose. Um, and it, it was a great sort of starting point, but it left me with some sort of unfinished business. Um, I left Shell. I went into consultancy with McKinsey and A.T. Carney. I enjoyed the work there. It was very stimulating. The colleagues were great. But I still had a feeling, look, I want to get back and do something that's more clearly related to purpose. And I was dead lucky. Um, I was minding my own business and spotted an opportunity uh, to essentially join and create the Carbon Trust at the very beginning in 2001. And it, it struck me as appealing on three grounds. One, um, 
it, it, it's got purpose. You know, tackling sustainability and climate change was recognised as purpose. It's a huge, big, ambitious and difficult problem, which is the second thing I remember enjoying. But the third is it was a startup. And having worked for big corporations for you know, over 20 years of my career, I just thought I've never done a startup. This is a startup worth doing. Uh, and so I, I got involved in the Carbon Trust. Uh, so the transition from Shell to Carbon Trust was never quite as simple as Shell bad, Carbon Trust good. Um, it, it was much more an evolution over time. What I realize is also how much um, perspective it gives you now is that you're, you know, because fossil fuels are, are the one biggest source of emissions yeah. and having spent those 16 years there must give you an enormous uh, insight into how it works, what, what needs to be changed and what needs to be done. Uh, to kind of um, help tackle this, um, which leads me to the question of, you know, I'm sure your role uh, evolved uh, as the CEO of Carbon Trust, but could you maybe um, give us an idea of what your kind of agenda is uh, as the CEO of Carbon Trust? What are some of the biggest challenges you tackle and maybe also what makes you the happiest as the CEO of Carbon Trust? Yeah, um, we'll start at the beginning, what, what, what the role is all about. I mean, the Carbon Trust is a relatively unusual organisation. Um, it was set up as a bridge between the UK government and business and the public sector in the UK to try and promote action on climate change. Now, go back a little way. In 2001, there was a carbon tax uh, in the UK called the Climate Change Levy. Uh, it was almost the world's first carbon tax. Um, business didn't want it. And in a sense, we were there to be government funded, but entirely independent of government to actually help people uh, take action in a positive way on climate change. So from the very beginning, there was a kind of, okay, so you're the disruptor in, in this space. You're there to try and make something happen that wouldn't otherwise have happened. And our mission, quite simply, is to accelerate the move to a decarbonized future. And accelerate means doing stuff that other people wouldn't do. And that's a big motivation for the organization. We're always looking for the next thing to do, not the easy thing to do. Um, and it's surprising that over over 20 years, um, we've kept that very much at the core of our ethos. You know, we like doing difficult stuff. We like taking risks. It doesn't always pay off, um, but we'd rather be there taking the risk and showing that something can be done than just being more passive. So that was the very, very beginning of, of, of the Carbon Trust. Um, and now, of course, we, we see one, an acknowledgement that climate change is so big a problem. Um, you know, back in 2001, it was seen as a niche area of concern. Now it's mainstream, and that's fantastic. And, and you know, uh, people around the world recognize the impact that climate change is already having and quite how important it is for us to get a grip on it. Um, so that's something that's changed enormously. Who plays in the game has changed enormously. Go back uh, 20 years, and it was largely driven by governments and policy and you know, the reality is that policy has disappointed over the last 20 years. Yeah, we still don't really have a significant carbon price globally. We still don't have policies that really enforce new standards that take everybody to you know, a decarbonized future. It, it's been very hard. Um, and in part, that's because it was a niche area and governments found it very hard to prioritize both spending and focus of their political capital uh, on the area. But now all well, that's changed. <coughs> So governments are, um, I think, more in, engaged, um, but more importantly, the private sector has really piled in. And that's the biggest change over the last 20 years. Um, governments have sort of gone along, always trying to do their best, but let's be honest, in a democracy, trying to do something with a long-term outcome that nobody quite understands is hard as a cell. 
Um, whereas for the private sector, opportunities uh, to invest in a sustainable future have just blossomed over the last, particularly the last 10 years. And I think that's what's driving the dynamic in the market at the moment, why there is so much activity, because for the first time, it's it's almost private sector led, but with a very complicit and very supportive public sector. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I have one point to this. I watched um, one of your YouTube videos of Carbon Trust back from 11 years ago. And what you were saying in there is so relevant still today, but I feel like you were among the only ones uh, kind of, or like very few of you were there uh, 11, 15 years ago, uh, saying the things that you were saying about climate change and climate action. And uh, so now that you kind of described the evolution of carbon trust, and you also mentioned that um, there are way many more players today in the market, is your goal with the carbon trust still the same as it was before about like pushing climate action or has it evolved to, you know, being more of a consultant for the private sector? Because there is enormous competition also from management consultancies are acquiring small technology of sustainability technological companies. So there's also enormous competition. Um, so how do you see also your role as Carbon Trust along these bigger consultancies yeah. or something? Yeah. I mean, uh, firstly, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Carbon Trust evolved from being a private company uh, that is not for dividend. So right from day one, and it's still the same today, there are no shareholders in the Carbon Trust. There are members. The members are there to ensure that we do the right work, that we focus on our mission and any surplus we create, we reinvest in our mission. That made us fairly unique uh, when we started. It makes us very unique now. Um, the payback, of course, is that, that independence, I think, enhances the trust that people will have in what we do, um, whether that's public or private sector. You know, the fact that we're there, that we're truly independent, we're lucky enough to have made that transition uh, to what we are today uh, and be a viable organization. We have to be able to you know, pay our way. So we have to be able to create a surplus that we continue to reinvest in the business. In terms of where we sit in an increasingly crowded market, I mean, there are a number of different axes to look at. Um, I would normally say, well, look, there's generalists and specialists. Generalists typically are exactly that. They're very big. They've got deep competency. They've got great reach, often global. Um, they're often the place that you would go to um, if you're looking for some advice and you're looking and you're a little unsure and you want to get some, some trusted advice because these are often your auditors. They're often advisors to the board. So, But they're generalists. Being generalists, they're known for doing everything. Um, the specialists are the pure play uh, folk people focused on sustainability and it's a big market in itself. So within that, there are smaller areas. But I would describe us as, as, as a specialist, one of the sort of mid-sized specialists. I mean, we're just over 400 people, um, but we are very much a specialist. So when people come to us, they know what they're looking for. They know what they're going to get. Um, that's all we do. And of course, one advantage of being a specialist is that people recognize that you know, that's all you do. So you're probably going to be very good at it, or you're not going to be there at all. So it, it's it's a balancing act. Um, I admire many of the very big generalist organizations who support the sector in all kinds of different ways. Um, but I think there's also a role for specialists, people who are absolutely focused, who live and breathe this. It's all they do. And in our case, we're a specialist with a particular status because we're truly mission led. We have no shareholders. 
so in that sense, we stand out again from the crowd. That's amazing. And you kind of also are the pioneers because if there wasn't for you, then perhaps maybe we don't know, but uh, these big companies wouldn't maybe move towards this mainstream topic, but which is which all you said, obviously, is good. It's important to highlight that what how Carbon Trust is differentiated. And I'd like to also touch up on so what you, you mentioned that you're a specialist. Now I would like to deep dive a bit more into what you specialize in. So I'm just going to name a few things that uh, Carbon Trust has done. For example, the first carbon footprint label, the Carbon Trust standard, the route to net zero standard. So could you maybe please walk us through how these are connected to or whether these are connected to your specialization? Because um, maybe one opinion could be that you specialize in net zero. I remember, I don't know if it, if it was you who said this, but that you have done over 200 net zero strategies. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's even more by now. So tell us what, what, what yeah. specializes you. Well, I, I suppose a couple of things. Firstly, um, we're unusual in that we work with both public and private sector. Mm -hmm. And we work with financial institutions across both. We work with corporates, we work with governments. And we know that uh, they value the fact that we work so broadly across the sector. Uh, so that's that's a useful starting point. In terms of the actual propositions and what we actually do, um, it all comes back to the mission to accelerate the move to decarbonize future. Um, on one side, there is an enormous amount we do working directly with individual organizations as a consultancy. Um, we bring our own expertise in carbon footprint measurement, carbon accounting, value chain, yeah, product carbon footprinting. We almost wrote the book on it. Now we do it and we do it commercially. And uh, a lot of people like the fact that we were around um, when all these standards were being developed. We contributed to the development of the standards and now we're making them operational for so many organizations. So a lot is based around a deep understanding of the carbon footprint of products, services, things. And and that leads to very early on, you mentioned the product carbon label. We uh, we did some work looking at life cycle analysis, working out the product carbon footprint um, of a product on a you know, literally source to grave um, basis. And way back in 2008, we put the first carbon reduction label onto a product. It was a packet of crisps, Walker's crisps, cheese and onion. And uh, that was interesting because all of a sudden we brought a new angle on this. We tried to involve the consumer, give the citizens some opportunity to make some smart choices. And even if they're only aware of the carbon footprint of a few products, a few things they do, flying versus driving, uh, pasta versus rice, whatever it might be, they'll be able to make better choices. So the carbon reduction label was a way of both addressing that latent need for the consumer to be able to understand and make good choices, but also help businesses who want to really focus on lower carbon products and services. So that that started off uh, pretty well. Um, I always remember a journalist uh, looking at the first packet of uh, crisps, and it was 37 and a half grams by mass of potato crisps, and it was 75 grams of CO2. And the journalist said, I don't get it. And I said, brilliant, what a great starting point. Um, you know, this is how much it weighs, and this is the weight of the carbon dioxide that has been emitted in producing this packet of crisps. Um, and once the journalist got it, he, he wrote it up and he was bang on. 
and it's that sort of moment where you suddenly think yeah okay understanding the penny will drop and when it does it, it's really powerful as an influence so product carbon labeling uh, right the way through to our latest work we're working on value chain and as you say on route to net zero now why is net zero so important um not that long ago in the paris agreement um there was a very subtle but very important shift it was from targets being set on an absolute basis that nobody could understand. So, you know, you've reduced your carbon footprint by 20%. Uh, I've done mine by 12%. You win. Well, that's ridiculous. 20% of what? 12% of what? Does it matter? And what happened in the Paris Agreement was a focus on science-based outcomes. Let's not argue over who's doing better. Let's argue about our progress towards something that we know will address the worst impact of climate change. So science-based targets has been incredibly powerful as a convener and aligner of the interests of public and private sector, governments, businesses, banks, and so on. Now, science-based targets, that's the end point. Net zero is very much seen by us as being what you have to achieve to get to that end point. So net zero is you know, the journey to a point in time where what residual carbon emissions you have um, are offset by genuine carbon dioxide removals or greenhouse gas removals, GGR. Now that's a journey that goes from today and often is a 20 or 30 year journey. So net zero is all about an ambition. It's all about an aim. It's difficult. At the beginning, net zero is all about optimizing what you do today. Then it's about investing in the things that you know are going to work for your business. And then the further you look out in time, the more you typically realize that you need to transform your business. What you do today isn't going to be what you do in 15 years time. And the quicker you can make that transformation, the more business uh, opportunity you will see in it. So net zero is all about a transition. And uh, we do a lot of work on net zero pathways with all kinds of organizations around the world. And then you've got sort of the snapshots in time which will be more the sort of, you know, this is what I'm doing today. And that can be I'm reducing my emissions today. It could be I've got an intrinsically low carbon product. It could be I'm going to claim carbon neutrality by offsetting whatever emissions I have. So net zero is, is a big part of what we do. Now I can just park it and say all of that typically is for organizations who we help. We want them to be more ambitious and we derive our impact as an organization from the ambition that we can create amongst the organizations we work with. But that's organizations we work with on an individual basis. There's also a lot of work that we've done over the years and still continue to do working with organizations who want to collaborate, typically at an early stage of their journey. They realize there's something maybe they want to do in future that's never been done before. It's quite a big risk and quite a big investment to try doing something completely different. If you and your sector can agree to take that early risk, share the risk, share the opportunity, you can make enormous things happen. So a best example I can think of is the offshore wind accelerator. So we got involved in offshore wind well over 10 years ago, nearly 14 years ago now. And at the time when it was seen as being a kind of promising, but nevertheless far too expensive and completely unindustrialized technology. We knew about onshore wind, but the concept of taking onshore wind offshore into the high seas at much bigger scale, away from concerns about you know, visual intrusion on land, was just a concept. The industry were really keen to develop it because they saw it as a, a future business for them, um, but they didn't have the capacity uh, and indeed the focus. And they didn't want to do it alone. 
But when you looked at the industry participants together, they did want to do it as a, as a collaboration. So we created the Offshore Wind Accelerator. All the major players developing offshore wind uh, became partners um, and they shared intellectual property. They shared the experience. They shared the cost of all this early stage development. Now, we still run the Offshore Wind Accelerator and various other offshore wind programs. And as a case study example in how you should collaborate first to knock the hell out of the cost space, prove something can be scaled, um, get it to the point where it's sufficiently proven for banks and financial institutions to be prepared to invest in it. That's what you do in collaboration. When you actually get to the point where the market says, OK, now now go, you compete. That's what markets do well. So there's something about working in collaboration, particularly on innovation areas, um, energy systems. A lot of work is going into that right now. Energy storage and the integration of energy storage into renewable power is an incredibly complex but also important area um, that we get involved in. So you could well say the Carbon Trust does too many things. Uh, I often think we do too many things. We do we do things because we don't want to not try something that hasn't been done before that we think could have real impact. So we are serial risk takers and uh, we tend to end up doing more things than we should. I think if we were more commercial, we'd focus on a much narrower number of things, but maybe with less ambition. No, I believe that it's uh, it's good that you are um, you are so ambitious. Um, I think it's important to have such players, and there's so many things I'd like to unpack in what you said. And but first of all, I'm going to say that we had an episode, two episodes back, about energy, energy storage, renewable energy, and all of this, so the listeners can um, have a listen to that. I'd like to stay with net zero for a bit. You mm -hmm. said what the, the carbon trust perspective on net zero is, but could you also be maybe more specific on how you define net zero because this is something that's it's becoming more uh, more defined, let's say, in the climate space, but still there is some ambiguity. I know that the SBTI has some guidelines on different sectors having to have a dif different percentage of reduction and a certain amount that can be offset. Do you have such guidelines also within Carbon Trust and how do you see the whole net zero discussion uh, more specifically? Yeah, I mean, net, net zero is a complicated uh, area. Um, and it's not been well defined. So let, let's just unpick it a little bit. Um, I think a lot of people have come up with net zero claims that they really cannot substantiate. And I'm going to use this because then we can talk about how you might define it better. If you take net zero as a concept, what you're saying is that the planet needs to get to the point where the remaining carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions at a certain point in time are fully offset by actual removal of those greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. So that's a hell of an ambitious uh, point, but it's global. It involves all countries on a geographic basis and all organizations and value chains on a sectoral basis. So there's a complete disconnect. When governments talk about net zero, they talk about it on a geographic basis. When organizations talk about net zero, they talk about it on a value chain or sector basis. So immediately you've got two different definitions, two different understandings of net zero. The end point is the same. We need a planet where our residual emissions are at a level where the greenhouse gas removals from those emissions nets out at zero or indeed goes positive. So if you then say, OK, now it's getting a little bit confused. Um, I would argue there are three things which typically un unravel good net zero claims. 
The first is that people rely in many cases in their claims on incredible assumptions. They often look at the assumptions you would have to make to get to net zero, assume that they will be true, and that becomes their net zero pathway. So it's a net zero pathway that's plausible, it's possible, but it often contains a lot of risk. So actually asking the question about the assumptions that you make is really important. And I would argue that most net zero pathways um, are insufficiently calibrated to take into account the real probability of it working. The second problem with net zero pathways um, is it, it, a very simple one. Um, you've got to be able to add up all the organizations and entities in the world to get to net zero or all the geographies in the world either. Um, therefore, if you're going to get to net zero, but in getting there, you prevent somebody else from getting to net zero, you end up blowing the system apart. Let me give you an example. If you are a fossil fuel company and you say that the basis of my net zero is going to be a massive uh, nature-based solution uh, approach, which is going to be fine, I just need to have you know a forest the size of the Amazon. That's fine. That might work for an individual company. If you then look at all the companies within the sector, you cannot each have a forest the size of the Amazon. You exceed planetary boundaries very quickly. We don't have that landmass. We certainly don't have it if we want to produce food for the population. And similarly, you can have similar assumptions that break boundaries in terms of the availability of materials and resources. So the second point is not that the assumptions are incredible, but that added together, they don't reach net zero for us all. And the third area I think where net zero is uh, really challenging are the organizations, um, and dare I say, in some cases, I would argue governments who talk about net zero because it's convenient to talk about. They have no real intention of getting to net zero. They're being very cynical. They're saying, keep off my back for another 10 years. I'm going to tell you I'm doing net zero. By the time you've worked out I'm not, it'll be too late. So three big flaws in, in, in net zero. Um, I think there are two things. You're quite right. Certain people are starting to say, well, for this sector, net zero has got to be this. And for this sector, it can be that. But have you added together all the sectors to see that in aggregate, you actually do reach your net zero? And in many cases, people who come up with sectoral approaches do it because they have the interests of a sector at mind. Really, to be honest, you've got to be and sincere. You've got to add up all the sectors to make that true. The other is that the minute you start looking at individual sectors and try dissecting too much, the natural tendency is to make some of these incredible assumptions. Yeah, the sector's going to be fine so long as this technology or this market becomes scalable. Well, that's fine, but it's not quite the same as it being net zero, done deal. It's not. So I think there's something about um, asking the difficult questions and you know, there's no way you can have a register of all the net zeros in the world and add them all up. That's too complicated. But you do need to at least be aware that some things are heavily dependent on the development of, for instance, technologies or markets that simply don't exist. If you have an incredibly high carbon price, you will drive certain behaviors. That's a market solution. Technology, you look at aviation fuel, sustainable aviation fuel at scale. Is that consistent with land use for other purposes? I don't know but it's what the aviation sector would, would have you believe.
So you could ask the questions and keep asking the questions. And I don't think there is ever going to be a single definition because it's more of a concept than a definition. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing this perspective. Um, it is the, the word assumption kind of resonated. I had to smile because we we did develop some net zero strategies and you know these assumptions we would come up with. I mean, I had a chocolate producer and we would say like they're going to turn 70% of their production vegan and they're going to change the whole packaging, you know, and then you kind of because we kind of simulated it, it, it's it's a fun exercise. But when you then have to do it in real life, it completely, as you say, is dependent on, OK, but who will help do this technology? Who will help us, you know, create this packaging? I'm also a, an optimist, so I think that, you know, we can rely on on, on startups in this and on private markets that play an enormous role in making these technologies really happen. But the, the second question is what you also mentioned, the scale and um, the carbon prices, all these things, which leads me to another question that I have for you, and that is about climate policy and the governments and what role they play in the whole transition. You mentioned in the beginning that, and I, I must agree that uh, the po climate policy has not been sufficient to date, but it is, let's say, improving or, or, or do, what is your opinion? Do you think it's it's, it's on a good, good way? Let's say the IRA in the United States or all the regulation in, in Europe. Uh, I mean, obviously Europe is at the forefront. So what's your opinion on this? Yeah, I mean, firstly, let's not underestimate the challenge. Um, most of the world is uh, is ruled by democracy, and the democratic process is pretty challenging because how far you can stray from business as usual is often constrained by the electoral cycles. So having a world made up of democracies has lots of great things, but it's not necessarily um, an easy thing to then say, okay, let's get all of these democracies to collectively agree that we're going to do something really hard in terms of forcing a transition that other people don't want. Because for the transition that you want, there are going to be people who are going to suffer. I mean, net-net, the transition's a good thing. It's a good thing for business. It's a business opportunity. It reduces risk. It reduces cost. For the citizen of the world in 30, 40 years' time, I'm absolutely convinced that net zero is a good thing. But in the meantime, there are a lot of people who are going to find themselves displaced by, by the process of transition. So uh, I think policy has got to be sensitive to all of those issues, but at the same time, not so sensitive that it loses its edge. And that's the problem. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in the just transition. Uh, it's really important. At the same time, if you really think of private sector uh, organizations operating in free markets within democracies, could it ever really be a transition that wasn't just? I mean, the checks and balances are there. So just transition is fine, but in my mind, it's it's what I would expect great businesses and, and financial institutions to push for anyway. The danger is when just transition becomes shorthand for special interests that may, by the way, have nothing to do with the environment. And one of the biggest challenges is to keep policy focused on the purpose that you want to see, which is decarbonizing our future. So, you know, policymakers often compromise and they do something which is, well, kind of good for the environment, but it's also good for two or three other things which they happen to want to hit. So what do I think works and doesn't work? Um, I think uh, carbon pricing fundamentally is a very powerful tool and it's one which just hasn't really resonated. I think leading or leading countries and policies 
that lead to behavior almost by we know this is going to happen, so we're going to follow it. So look at Californian automotive emissions regulations. You know, by the time California has, has, has set up a process in place, the world's car manufacturers recognize, OK, yeah, we're going to need to make a transition here. And actually, the transition to electric vehicles with legislation in the uh, EU, with legislation in some parts of the world, has nevertheless been pretty much onboarded by the companies in anticipation of regulation rather than in response to it. So I think policy is important. I think the signals that you give for policy are possibly even more important. If you make it clear that this is the way we're going and the private sector starts to mobilize in that direction, often the policy can be relatively light. Now, there are other areas where you need to be a lot harder, typically in areas where you can't see the impact of the policy. So things like buildings. I mean, we're sitting here in the UK. Building regulations are not great in the UK. If you look at the energy efficiency standards for buildings in the UK, nothing like as good as in many other countries within Europe, nothing like as good as the world's best practice. Why? Well, there are lots of businesses, there are lots of sectoral interests that really aren't served. At the end of the day, it all feels like an awful lot of hassle. So it doesn't happen. So I think policy is um, essential. At the very least, it needs to be aligned and supportive of action taken by citizens and the private sector, at the very least. If it can actually be policy that accelerates that, that would be even better. Yeah, I agree. And I have one comment to this. Uh, there's this concept or speech by Mark Carney about, he called it the tragedy of the horizon, that climate change is the tragedy that is beyond, um, you know, technocratic or, or political cycles. because. Politicians get voted in for four or five years, depending on the country, even more or less. And what I realize now when you're speaking about consumers is that it's so intertwined because when consumers will demand from politicians that, you know, climate change is tackled, then perhaps it won't be that the horizon will be coming closer and closer. But at this point, it's probably not of so much interest to them. Uh, and other things rather than environment matter that they are pushing it um, to the future. Yeah, yeah. I think consumers have three three votes. Um, every time they they buy, they spend. Um, that's a vote. They can choose what to buy. They can choose what to spend their their, their money on. Um, they can vote. Most can most uh, most of us are consumers who have a vote. That's that's a pretty powerful tool, and it gives you a second vote. And the third vote you have is the one that's hidden. It's what you choose to do with your savings. Financial institutions around the world are driven by capital flows, and most of the world's capital flows come from people's savings, which is quite interesting. Now, how often do you find people who actually say, I'm going to direct my savings to something that is absolutely aligned with a purpose that I believe in? Generally speaking, that's not the case. So consumers are, are, are incredibly important. The other thing is, and I, I like Mark Carney's kind of outline of that, um, there was another sort of little thing in the back of my mind that, that I think is very relevant that certainly helped me in the Carbon Trust many times. I was having a discussion with um, somebody at Greenpeace and we were there at some event and he was talking about global poverty and I was talking about climate change and we, we basically tried to talk about how hard it is to really push ambition. And the mental model we created was one of imagine you have a big stone on the floor and you have an elastic band and all you do is you tie the elastic band around the stone and you decide you're going to pull it 
across the room. So imagine you've got this stone and you're pulling it across the room using just one elastic band. If you get your stone across the room, you probably think I could have done that faster. I should have pulled a little bit harder. On the other hand, if you pull really hard and the elastic band breaks, you've, you've left the problem where it is. And I think there's a lot of that in the politics of climate change, how hard you can pull before you lose people. Extinction Rebellion, I think, went perilously close to breaking the elastic band and losing people's support. So there is something about how hard you can pull. And what makes it work easier and better is if everybody agrees that this is something that needs to be done. So when you do get this alignment of citizens, public and private sector that, yeah, this is something we need to do, that then de-risks anybody going off and doing something completely crazy. So I think am ambition is, is, is really hard. The other thing which you know, I mentioned sometimes, and I think it's true, it's almost a downside of democracy. Um, if you ask most people around the world what their view is on climate change, now a significant majority will say, we believe that climate change is real and it's man-made. They'll also say, and we should be doing something about it. So you've got a situation where, you know, the population in most countries is strongly supportive of climate change action being taken, and particularly younger people. And that's really powerful. Now, um, that's fine until climate change action and sustainability becomes politicized. Because the minute you have a political uh, situation and something has become politicized, look at the US. All of a sudden, what is 70-30 or 80-20 in favor becomes 52-48. So by politicizing an issue, you actually reduce the alignment of people to say, yeah, this is something we need to do. And actually you limit the politician's ability to really push ambition. So, you know, we're very fortunate um, in the UK. I, I'd argue that climate change isn't heavily politicized. I don't think it is in Europe. It is on the on the boundaries, but, but fundamentally it isn't. Where climate change becomes heavily politicized it's it's incredibly hard to make progress. Yeah, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the analogy of, with the stone. It's going to really stick in my mind, I'm sure. Um, and I'd like to stay with this, um, maybe not so much politicization of climate change, but uh, the geographic differences and and come back to the just transition as well. So carbon trust is also present in China, Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, and you also spent a um, chunk of your career there in sub-Saharan Africa, as you mentioned. Um, so from your perspective, let's say maybe from, from your clients, the clients that are in these markets, um, how different are the challenges that you are tackling with them in carbon trust to, let's say, Europe and the US and the UK? Do you see the things that we talked about, maybe politics or, or the just just transition yeah. challenges there differently than here? Yeah, yeah, I, I think they are different. Um... I think a couple of things. There, there are some regions of the world where um, politicians may well make the case that, look, you know, um, we we are growing very fast. We cannot grow fast enough. Uh, and at the end of the day, economic growth is pulling people out of poverty. So there's a poverty angle here. Um, we can't grow fast enough unless we can use fossil fuels. That can be coal. That can be other fossil fuels. And, you know, 
the obvious answer at this point is we'll find a way of developing renewables and alternatives that are not fossil fuel dependent more quickly. So accelerate that. But they will nevertheless say there's a trade-off between economic growth and the rate of development of, of, of non-fossil fuel energy. Um, so that's a transition issue. I think it's fine to raise it as an issue, but we've also got to recognise that net zero is only net zero if it's for the whole world. We can't have net zero Europe and a non-net zero Asia. That doesn't work. That doesn't add up. It isn't net zero anymore. Europe would have to be massively net positive if Asia were net negative. I mean, it's as simple as that. So careful with just transitions because sometimes there are hidden agendas that you need to be very cautious of. But you also need to be sensitive. I mean, if, if, if you don't recognise legitimate concerns um, about people, particularly in developing economies, um, then you, know, you lose the point, you lose the agenda. So it's very important to, to have that right. Yeah, I think in almost every country that we operate in, not just in the ones you mentioned, but in other countries we, we operate in, um, there are always local agendas and they need to be respected. But just because they're there doesn't mean they don't need to be challenged sometimes. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of the things I hope the Carbon Trust is known for is sincerity. You know, at the end of the day, uh, if nothing else, we'll tell it as it is. We'll, we'll tell you the truth as we see it. Um, and that means that we almost have an obligation to be a critical friend sometimes and actually say, yeah, that's great. But do you know what? You're not that different. You might feel you're different, but you're not. I mean, I think I was delighted in the last COP to see uh, progress finally made on loss and damage. I think that was a big step forward. It's been an agenda item for years and quite rightly so. Countries literally saying you've had all the benefits of fossil fuels and the economic uh, progress that that has driven. Now we need something because we, we've lost out badly because you've benefited at our cost. Um, I think it's very hard to see how you repair for damage. I do think it puts a big onus, though, on the developing world um, to expect from the developed world real support to make this transition. So when people say, yeah, we would make the transition to net zero, but at the moment the cheapest form of energy we've got is coal because we're sitting on it, and you want us not to use the coal we're sitting on, you know, somebody somewhere has to help people financially do the right thing. And I think that's incumbent largely on the developed world, which I think is where the, the concept of loss and damage is, is powerful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I was going to ask you about COP, um, knowing that you were there, but um, we're slowly coming towards the end. And before we come to the last section, I want to ask you more, more of a general question about um, because we just started 2023. So uh, going into the new year, what is your um, so what do you think will be at the forefront of the sustainability agenda? Let's say corporate sustainability, but also maybe governments. So what do you what, what would you like to see and what do you yeah. see from the past could be at the forefront? Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you look at it on a, on a year by year basis, inevitably it's what's happening outside sustainability because the sustainability challenge has been around for a while. It's going to be around for a lot longer. So I think it may well be defined by um, a focus on resilience in supply chains. Um, the Ukraine war has you know, 
had an enormous economic impact on Europe, but that also is an impact that's now rippling out to the rest of the world. So, you know, I think there's a reminder that it's all very well having the right solution, but it's got to be a resilient solution. So I think resilience is going to be part of the debate around sustainability more in 23 because of geopolitical uh, happenings. So I think that's that's one. Um, I think the fact that most of the world is heading into recession isn't exactly great. Um, and it's a timely reminder. If you're in recession, you end up focusing on what you must do. And what I hope is that we've all made the case that sustainability now is must do, not nice to do. COVID was extraordinary because during the worst and darkest hours of COVID, um, organizations broadly said, no, sustainability is a must do. A bit like health and safety, it's a must do. And that was an incredibly positive thing because back in 2010, when the economic crisis happened, basically governments and corporates around the world said we can't afford to do the right thing so we'll do the wrong thing during covid they said no no we're going to continue investing in this we're going to do the right thing and so i think what's really important despite the fact we're going into recession is that governments and organizations all buy into sustainability is a must-have it's not not an option the fact that it has a long-term payback and great economic benefit is something we need to keep reminding ourselves of when governments started thinking, well, we'll do more fossil fuels to respond to Ukraine, I've never heard of anything so daft in my mind. You know, it takes decades to develop fossil fuels to the point at which you can really shift the supply demand balance. Um, so that was just massively opportunist. The reality is that your response in the short term to things like energy prices going up should be focused on demand reduction, energy efficiency, and on non-fossil fuel clean energy development as quickly as you can. Thanks for sharing that. And so during uh, our talk, um, it's obvious that you're super knowledgeable, but also the values of, of um, Carbon Trust, I think, reflect your values very much. And um, before my last question, I have this one uh, kind of question out of my own curiosity that, as I mentioned, in 2018, you were awarded the CBE by the Queen for Services um, to Sustainability in Business. Uh, so congratulations are, are in order, I hope so. But for listeners abroad, and I'm going to be honest, I had to Google as well uh, the short what the shortcut stands for. But this is the British Order of Sh Chivalry called the Commander of Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. Um, and I'm going to be honest, you are the first first person of such um, title that I'm speaking to. So could you please maybe tell us how it came about and what it means to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was very proud to be awarded a CBE. Um, it's something I never expected. Um, it's something that's very unusual. Uh, essentially, the honours system in the UK uh, works on the basis that a number of honours are issued to individuals um, twice a year, uh, typically uh, different ranks of honour, uh, different importance as it's seen. And to get an honour, somebody somewhere has to think you've done something good and basically nominated you. And once you've been nominated, then there's a process apparently that goes on in the background. And if if, if you're uh, seem to have done something important, something valuable, something with purpose, then you can get an award and that's that's how it happens. So I don't know where the nomination to, for my CBE ever came from. Um, somebody somewhere must have thought it was okay and enough other people kind of agreed that they, uh, they thought it was nice. Um, I was proud of it and very pleased because I think it was uh, a reflection of the work of the Carbon Trust as a team. You know, at the end of the day, I'm just one person amongst many 
Um, yes, I have you know, values that I hope are the values of the organization. Um, but at the end of the day, I share those values with pretty much everybody in the organization. So no, I, I, uh, I saw it as, as, as a big uh, kind of pat on the back, keep going, do better. Uh, I was lucky enough to collect my, uh, my, my CV medal and it was put around my neck by uh, now King Charles III. And uh, I met him once or twice before very briefly. And you have about 30 seconds to talk to the monarch as he gives you your medal. And he asked me the question, he said, how are we doing? Is it better now? Because he really cares about the environment. And I said, well, we're trying pretty hard and we're making some progress, but we've got a long, long way to go. Uh, and I think that's probably pretty much you know, what I'd say here. We're yeah. doing OK. We've made some really good progress, but uh, the game isn't over yet. Yeah, thank you for sharing the story. It was great to hear. And one last question is also given that we have so much ahead of us. Many people are now um, some are quitting their jobs to go work in the climate space. But there are many of us like me and my classmates who are, you know, educating ourselves and, and wanting to um, dedicate our careers to climate change. So what is the, your advice, best advice for young or people of any age who are aspiring to move into the career in climate change? I think it's a great I think it's a great career. It's a great sector to work in. It's got it's got purpose written all over it. So what you care about is purpose, you know, do, do sustainability. It really is fantastic. Um, recognize that it's a long term thing. You can start in a career in sustainability today and you probably will never finish uh, finish the job, which I think is also actually in some ways it's quite appealing. Um, but the most important thing is just to get stuck in, do something. Um, it's a sector that's evolving very fast. It's evolved very fast over the last couple of decades, but particularly over the last few years. And when anybody asks me, you know, what should I do first? Don't think too much about it. Just just get in there and get stuck in. Because actually the sector is very inclusive. Um, I think it's getting increasingly diverse and it needs to. Um, and broadly speaking, if you get stuck into sustainability as a career, it'll take you in different directions, but but it doesn't matter too much where you start. Now, of course, I say that with great respect to particularly the cohort at Imperial, all of whom will be brilliant um, because you started being brilliant. So you've had a year at, uh, or you have a year at uh, Imperial and you become yet more brilliant and certainly more knowledgeable. Um, I just say get stuck in and enjoy it. I mean, the one thing the one thing you don't want to do, because you're never going to transmit any kind of positive ambition or any positiveness, is doing it and feel miserable about it. You've got to do it because you see the opportunity and go and, go and grab it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for sharing everything that you've learned. And um, it was great having you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. <laughs>